Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 172, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. This week, the New York Times cites studies stating that school children seem unlikely to fuel coronavirus surges. And the Washington Post asks, is it time to stop segregating kids by ability in middle school math? Stay with us. Class Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, why one day of no instruction in just play may be exactly what this school year needs. Our guest explains. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here. Today is October 23rd, 2020, and I'm joined by a friend, principal, and co-host, Christina Pollard. Christina, how are you doing? I'm doing well. It's the end of October. Can you believe it? I can't. And um, I was actually looking, you know, typically in late October, we don't have to worry about tropical systems, but I saw we might actually have a tropical system drag across Louisiana and Mississippi. doesn't look like a bad one. But Zeta that, is on her way. I know, right before Halloween. So that's that's late in the year. Certainly possible, but late to have one sneak into the Gulf like this. Um, I think, it was it last week you mentioned you you guys were moving away from the hybrid model at your school and transitioning to traditional. Has that started up for you yet? It starts tomorrow, Monday, October 26th. We are going traditional. I have 651 students on the roster. I might have 50 students virtual. Wow. Do you had 50 students virtual before? This is the way it's going to be going forward. No, that's the way it's going forward because we did put some stipulations in place. I will say that we had over 200 students um, in the virtual learning model, then we had a hybrid model. So that split the rest of them between two groups. And a lot of those students either didn't have connectivity or a device, or if, even if they did have the connectivity or device, they were not participating appropriately, therefore putting themselves in a difficult academic situation. Mm-hmm. And so we were able to use um, attendance, participation, and performance as indicators of whether a child could be successful on virtual or not. And if they did not meet those standards, they needed to provide a doctor's note as to why they needed to be on virtual learning. So I think our numbers have dropped to about 50 um, or 60 students for now. We also put in a stipulation that we would not make any switches until January because it made it so difficult every single day, all day, getting switches from hybrid to virtual, virtual to hybrid, grades being lost in the management system. It's just, it has been a very difficult term for teachers and students in general, but that added to it trying to track these children right, the logistics, every day. You probably and have then, to take like a full-time employee just to calculate that and keep I'm up. Just, telling you it's it, it took it took a group because to get it right calculating 63% of the day um which allows a child to earn credit for the day was much more difficult um because you had to also count components within the daily modules four out of five to be able to give a child credit so a lot of them would log in they might watch a video they log out and they would think they were going to get credit for the day that for being in for five minutes so is there any doubt in your mind now that you've kind of watched this unfold that i mean the better education 
does happen in person. Would you agree with that? Yes. The better education does happen in person, but we're still looking at an equity issue because all along the higher officials have been saying that we are still going to hold schools accountable. We are still going to take high stakes tests. And that puts schools like ours at a disadvantage mm-hmm. when it, it was our communities that were being ravaged by COVID. And so hence making the decision to go hybrid and not bring all those children back in the building. And now looking at their performance and all that they're missing while other schools are flourishing and acting as if nothing has ever happened, we you know had to make a decision to bring them back to give them the best education we could give them so that they too could try and be prepared for um, high stakes testing and not lose out or widen the gap that already exists. Things are in the state pretty rough right now in, in the state of Mississippi where we live, but I think your county is in better shape than it was, say, a month or two ago. Is that a, an overstatement? Um, I wouldn't say it's an overstatement. Um, if Just looking at numbers, I would say that it's better off. But at the end of the day, um, across the state, our numbers are rising. This data is lagging about a week or so. And as we know, around the country, cases are spiking. But I had taken an average when school first started of the first five weeks. And teachers, on average, we would have 128 new cases. And then on average, students would have 287. Well, with the latest Mm -hmm. week of data, we had 398 students and 223 teachers. So in other words, it's about a 100 increase of both sides, teachers and students, within with the latest week of data in the state of Mississippi. So we are seeing a spike within those at the school system. Now, we're going to talk a little bit, and I'm going to cite some some reports and, and stuff that one in NPR and one in New York Times that says, while we're seeing those spikes, it may have nothing to do with the schools. It might be the life that families are living outside of the schools. And, and I'll, I don't know what your So I have to interject yeah. there. Please. Yeah. I have to first interject and say that I am serving in the city school system, which is separate from the county school system. And to be honest to me, two very different cultures. Mm-hmm. And then when we think about the county that you and I live in, I 100% agree that it is about um, where they live and what they have access to. Um, Just looking at the children in the county where we live, there's a lot more social events happening. Um, There the opportunities that they have to socialize, to travel, to hang out, to throw parties, um, clubhouses within subdivisions, being able to host functions. Mm -hmm. We're seeing our young people interact a whole lot more on a social level and without restrictions. And it's disheartening because my child, I'm not allowing him to attend a lot of things. I think that he still... Um, you know, he has a little bit of interaction going on, obviously, but not as much as as anyone else um, that we're seeing in our counties. And then when I look at where I actually serve, that's not really happening um, with our children. They may see each other in their neighborhoods just a little bit, but large gatherings or whatnot, I don't think that they're happening, which hence I have to give credit um, to our school district for such strict policies, um, sticking to the recovery and restart plan, Uh, having such strict uh, procedures within the schools, we have not had an outbreak. We have not had high numbers of teachers out. So I think that plays a a large part in it is what's happening when they're at home and when they're on their own time. Uh, And I couldn't agree more. That's what I'm seeing. And I feel like there is data to back this up. First off, 
I feel for for you and all parents out there who have to tell, you know, a 15, 16, 17 year old, they can't go hang out with their friends or there's too many people in that group. Like it's been tough. Like, I mean, watching they have to watch their friends, you know, go and do these things. Um, And sometimes there's outbreaks that take place and sometimes there's not. But it's tough. You know, it's hard to tell a teenager. No, Um, but it's just kind of the situation we're in. Um, But but I agree. For me, it's like I, I feel like the schools are doing such a great job. And I feel like what's happening outside of the schools is just wrecking it. And and I'm not going to speak specifically, but I'll say very true. I'll, I'll say clubs, athletics for what from what I've seen haven't had the same strict rules that um, say high mm-hmm. school athletics have had. And I really don't mm-hmm. like seeing that divide. It's like I watch them be so careful in the high school, but then there's still all these club athletics which aren't regulated by a county or a city, and all rules just go out the window. Um, and parents are gathering. I and agree with together. you. It's just, it's it's rough to watch. I don't know. It's hard. But one thing I guess I want to say on a positive note is just watching, you know, college football yesterday, I noticed that a lot of the dance teams, the cheer squads, you know, they're all wearing masks while performing. And then I sit back and think about the different schools that we've visited. And I'm not seeing that. Right. Absolutely. And, um, you know, again, it looks like things are not great. And and cases are spiking. Here's some good news, though, for within the schools. And, and, you know, we've always said we need to follow the numbers, follow the science. The there were multiple studies on the impact that schools have had in terms of spread. And these have been worldwide studies. And both of these, I'll link them in the show notes. um, Both of these stories about the studies, one is from NPR, and one is from the New York Times. So we can, I think it's fair to say these are middle of the road or slight left leaning. And, And both of these sources say that doesn't really seem like a whole lot of spreadings taking place within the schools. And, and they, they cite all this in there. And for example, there was um, a study out of Spain, and they do extensive contact tracing in Spain. This guy was looking at the contact tracing, and he was, um, his name's Alvarez, and he said his research suggests that the there's not much of a difference happening, not much spread happening within the schools. He found that for all the students and staff who tested positive, 87% of them did not infect anyone else at the school. They were mostly single cases. Exactly. So yes. that's kind of what they're seeing. And um, and again, this, I will cite this so you can kind of take a deep dive if you want to look at it. But that seems to be what the data is saying, that we can go back to school safely. Um, the irony. So yeah, what ahead. is it going to take? <laughs> what is it going to take um, for parents? Because that's who it's really on, right? What is it going to take for it's our parents take a, to pull back? Yeah. It's going to take a change in, in our tone, in our national message. I was thinking, let's take um, smoking, for example, and, and the way cigarette companies would target teenagers, right? Um, yes. What did governments do to combat that? Well, they, they started their own campaigns. They started you know, That's right. commercials. They started having spokespeople push back. Same thing for drugs and went on in the mm-hmm. 80s. And there's no- Because they recognize the negative impact on children. And-, and, and why do we not see a campaign either at a state or federal level, really at a federal level, where it makes wearing a mask, this is going to sound silly, but makes it cool? Like, why do we not see the tough guys? We in, should. In a we campaign? should see commercials. We should hear them on the, we should hear it on the news, um, on the radio, everywhere. What what impact would it have to see people like Nick Saban, John Cena, um, you know, these these guys that we kind of look to as, you know, uh, leaders, but mm-hmm. tough Um and they were saying and well liked by young people exactly and saying wear a mask um you know i think there's enough people out there and i would love to see 
federal dollars used to kind of change that tone, but it's just, it, instead we are divided and, and it's like anywhere I go, it's, you know, well, I, I don't even really have to go into it. I think we've all lived it. All right. So switching gears, uh, we talk so much about COVID-19 on here. And I, sometimes we, we can lose sight of just education in general. There was a story that jumped out at me um, this week that I saw in the Washington Post and um, me not having the education background that you do. I, I, I wanted your opinion. And, and the headline of the story is, is it time to stop segregating kids by ability in middle school math? It, and it talks about a district um, in New York called DeWitt Middle School and basically how they quit having, I guess you would call it remedial and accelerated math tracks. And they feel like it is, they're not seeing an advantage by putting kids through those. And also they feel like there is segregated by race sometimes. It's disproportionate on wh- who ends up where. White and Asian students often end up in the accelerated track and other students end up in the regular or the remedial path. I mean, what's your general thought? Have you ever questioned what we do with math? No, I haven't questioned it, but I I think it has to, I think you have to think about um, the population as you've just shared and then the location. So let's just use my middle school for an example. We are generally um, a minority school, okay? Mm -hmm. So if we put those tracks in place, we wouldn't see uh, segregation based on race. Right. It would truly be about ability. And so when you think of other schools and areas where they are diverse, and then you try that, it can send the wrong message. We it, Let's just be honest. We see what has happened over the years um, and the backgrounds that the children have that are so vastly different, their opportunities, what they're exposed to, um, the generational you know, experience, the generational um, success comes from having been set up for success. Mm-hmm. And it's this, this can go down a rabbit hole and I don't want to go there, but we we do have to think about that. And so taking a step back and saying, if I was in that situation, um, I think that would be very something to, to think about, but you would have a great battle depending on the percentage of, of students that you're talking about and their parents wanting that for their children. I think you would have to be very careful to put appropriate supports in place and then not just cut it off by this percentage of children were proficient or advanced. So we're going to put them in the advanced track and this percentage of children are far below grade level. So we're going to give them remedial. There's something called the bubble students that a lot of people don't realize what we're talking about there. That's those students who are right on the line of being able to be proficient or show the greatest potential for moving and growing higher. I think that's where we need to put our attention. As on the bubble students. Well, and you make a good point. You, your school is a good sample, right? I mean, your majority mm-hmm. minority students. So yeah, what what difference, what, what background they have, um, either they're good at math or they're not. The, the way this story Correct. reads, though, it also seems hard as a teacher. What they've done is they've kind of like, they've put all these students in the same classroom and different students are on slightly different tracks in the classroom. It sounds hard on mm-hmm. a teacher to do that. They were talking about pairing up students who are on the same track together to work together in the class. But is that not challenging for a teacher to kind of be teaching on multiple tracks within the same classroom? Uh, I think we're doing that anyway, whether we're okay. having an accelerated program or not. 
um, our learners' ability levels and just their exposure to different things is so different that we've been talking about differentiated instruction for some years now. And a lot of people will say, okay, you know, in education terms arise, um, we overuse them and then we need to, you know, bury them, have a funeral for them. I don't think you'll ever be able to bury the word differentiation. I think it's going to always be there. And I think we have to constantly train our teachers. And those are some of the things that we focus on in our weekly professional learning communities is really identifying those children and understanding that when you're differentiating and putting kids in small groups or pairs, that they have to be fluid and change literally weekly. And, and, and so it's a lot of stress on teachers, but it's a best practice. In Ithaca, the teachers talked about how they were worried that tracking the students was subjective and that basically it's, it's it's off of a teacher's recommendation. But the teachers often complained that they would get pressure from parents to to recommend their children for, say, an accelerated track. Um, so that tickles me. You make me want to know exactly, you know, the accountability level of that school and tradition how many students they have underperforming, because I suspect it's a high-performing school you're referring to. Yeah, and it may be, and they may say, oh, my child needs to be on this track and so forth. So by um, Because those are the kinds you experience in certain areas. <laughs> right. It, and so, um, unfortunately, you know, it's going to take a while for this, I guess you can call it experiment, to play out to see if it if it makes mm-hmm. a difference in how they perform later on as they go into I high school and college. I think it's valid research. I do. Um, yeah. So, uh, I thought it was an interesting grab. Um, it was something that I had never really thought of, but uh, definitely worth looking at. And again, I'll attach that one in the uh, show notes. Um, hey, so uh, it's kind of nice to talk about something that's not uh, COVID-related for a minute, right? I'll be honest with you. I miss all of our discussions about great ideas and strategies and things that are happening in education and the impact that it's making on children. And not to be grim, it's still important that we talk about COVID-19 and the impact that it's having on our schools. So thank you for bringing up a refreshing topic. Yeah, no problem. Hey, are you ready for uh, today's Bright Idea? I'm looking forward to it. What happens if students spent one day with no screens, no lessons, and just unstructured play? Our guests in today's Broad Ideas segment have been fighting for that for the past seven years. Eric Sable is the Director of Student Services at Ross Valley School District in California and the co-founder of Global School Play Day. And Scott Bedley is a fourth grade teacher in Southern California, also a co-founder of Global School Play Day. Uh, Both of you, welcome to Class Dismissed. Thank you so much for having us. Appreciate it, Nick. Great to be here. Now more than ever, Global School Play Day feels like an important thing. But let's pretend that somebody listening has no idea. They've never heard of GSPD. Um, Who wants to give me an elevator pitch in about 15 seconds? What is it? Yeah, um, studies and research have shown how vital it is for students to have unstructured play because of the negative impact of that unstructured playtime being taken away. And so we started Global School Play Day to say, hey, we as educators value play and we value it so much that we're willing to give up one whole day, right? One whole day, a little bit of sarcasm for us to give up just one day, but one day and say, hey kids, you get to be in charge. You get to make those decisions. This works on your empathy, your problem solving skills, your executive functioning skills, so many different things. And we get to just observe you and see how you interact with your peers. And so that helps us as well. So as you've observed schools and students doing this over the past seven years, what have you learned in, in the process? Well, the first year, um, uh, Eric had shared with me a TED Talk 
from a Dr. Peter Gray talking about the importance of unstructured play in kids. And I think both my brother and I shared that with my brother, Tim, and um, we both felt a call to action. And we reached back to Eric and said, hey, we need to do something about this. We're thinking about, and this was in the end of December, we're thinking about doing this thing called Play Day, Global School Play Day on first Wednesday in February. And, um, and he's like, yeah, let's do this. And so we pulled in a few of our other friends from across the United States that had a little bit of a reach to share it. And we thought, you know, we're giving it about a month of, of PR time uh, to promote this. And we're thinking we'll get, you know, if we could get 10,000 kids and their teachers signed up to participate in this, that's, that's a win just using our social media accounts and things like that. Well, that first year we had over 66,000 kids participating and, um, and it kind of blew us away. It said, hey, this is something that's ringing true with teachers. And this is something that they're seeing too as well, the negative effects of the lack of playtime for kids. And they want to do something about that. And in this last year, for the second year in a row, we had over a half a million um, kids participating from over 75 nations uh, just by word of mouth. This is purely word of mouth. We, we are no budgets, graph, complete grassroots, just um, a few um, poor educators trying to change the world, I guess you could say. Well, and that's awesome. And the fact that you've gotten this up to a half million kids, I mean, so I guess they're, they're signing up through a website, right? And they're kind of registering for this? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, we, uh, as a part of that initial launch um, in the winter of 2014-15, we just, again, in very ad hoc um, style, we um, got a Twitter page going, a Facebook feed, and a website. And um, and on that that web page is is a a simple um, form that uh, anybody can fill out for free um, to sign up. And you can find it at globalschoolplayday.com. And again, um, that first year, like Scott said, over 60,000 student participants uh, on six continents still haven't gotten Antarctica. So (laughs) so Scott and I have some work cut out for us. Still got to got to work on um, some of those science bases down there. But, um, and then this past February, um, again, uh, nearing 550,000 students in uh, about 75 countries. Um, and again, uh, the, the purpose of this day is to raise awareness. Um, and, and what we continue to encounter in the world of education it is still a mentality that separates work and learning from playing. It's 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 really interesting to to surface this mentality, especially in this day and age when there's so much research about student wellness, about trauma informed practices, around uh, the inequities and how they are exacerbated in uh, different communities that we serve um, in education. Um, and, and the need for really these holistic approaches um, to help students uh, develop uh, not only academically, but also um, socially, emotionally, physically, um, that uh, this idea of wellness is, is a 360 degree experience that schools can provide, but yet schools continue to turn their noses up at very simple things that cost nothing and that actually um, go back into our human biology, um, the biology of all mammals. Um, look at what any newborn mammal does in their plane. Um, fish play with each other. I mean, come on, it's, it's something universal. So, um, so that's something that um, we're 
continuing to push and we still truly have not felt even with uh, 70 plus countries participating we really don't feel like we've hit that tipping point yet um, where this is uh, embedded in the conscience and has become a part of uh, education's culture writ large I, I think every educator every parent in the country in the world right now is worried if the kids are okay, right? Like they're going through something that none of us ever had to go through with COVID. And, and, um, coincidentally, before we even started recording, I think Scott was telling us stories about, you know, kids worried about fires in California and combine that with COVID. And it's going on all around the world, whether it's a hurricane coming towards you or just a lot of stress. Why is this so crucial for this year, and I guess technically it's February 2021 is when the actual global school play day is. Um, why is it so important now? Yeah, Nick, it's it's the first Wednesday in every February forever. We're hoping. Um, I think what I think a story probably wraps it up best for me. So at the beginning of all the the quarantining and things along with uh, the coronavirus, I got a chance to see play in action with my own son. And I saw him pull out his Legos, and I saw him pull out his action figures, and I saw him talking through some of the fears that he has along with, you know, everything that was going on, you know, play is really a chance for kids to process through what they're learning and experience in life and make sense of it. Um, It's really difficult for us as adults to make sense of so many of the things that are happening in our world right now. But when you see us, you know, if you just let your kid play or see your kids just play instructor wise, it really gives you insight into, into how their brains process and um, it also engages you in a way to thinking like, how do I use this or during those structured times? And so, um, you know, with all that the kids are facing and all of us are facing, and I would say plays not just for kids. I would say it's important for us as adults too. And I know Eric agrees with that, but I think this is an, a vital way for kids to really be able to process through all that they're facing. There's actually rules that you all offer, right? I mean, this isn't like, all right, we're going to sign up for this and say, kids, go play. Like, you, you offer some guidelines, some guardrails, I guess, um, for schools around the world to really follow. Um, and, and you guys can run with this, but I'm going to kind of get you started. Like, I noticed you say, don't organize anything for the students, which is probably hard for a type A personality, but why? Um, Nick, I'm, I'm really happy you asked that question. Something that we encounter a lot as we're talking with fellow educators, whether they're classroom teachers or site administrators or district level admin, um, we hear some fears around control. If we hand over this time to the kids, they're going to get out of control. At my own school, at Hall Middle School, um, where I was back in 2015 when this started, um, I, I had colleagues that were worried that if it went beyond an hour, the kids would get bored um, and that the day would devolve into chaos. And, and in fact, it was uh, Tim who um, really brilliantly um, started to talk about that's, that's actually something that we want. We want the kids to get bored. We want them to be in that zone long enough to cycle out of one uh, cycle of play and to ramp up another one. And, um, and it was actually just uh, this past February uh, at my former school that the, we had the agreement that all teachers in all classes for the entire day were going to just hand it over to play day. And the results were extraordinary because, um, yes, we had clear expectations in place. Um, and the kids with 
tiny minor exceptions that would happen on a typical day in a middle school. Um, it was absolutely fabulous. And, and Scott said it best play isn't just for kids. The adults got into it too, whether they're out on the field running around or whether they're playing music with the kids or joining in games that the kids had started. It's a completely different way for adults and students to engage with each other and to actually um, circle up around a more uh, fundamental level of humanity um, rather than our formal roles in the educational setting. Um, So those guidelines are in place uh, as well they should be. You know, we should have a red light, green light out (laughs) um, at every intersection. Um, But other than that, give them the time and space, hand over one day out of 180, and you'll be amazed at the results. I'm shooting from the hip a little bit because I remember seeing, I think it was the the TED Talk you were talking about, Peter Gray's TED Talk, and, and I watched it over a year ago. But I want to say there was something in there that stuck with me as a parent. Um, and, and did he talk about something about risky play and why that's important for kids to actually do things that are, I, I'm not dangerous, but risky? Dr. Gray is uh, probably one of the leading researchers around play globally. And one of the things he focuses on is why are kids playing and why are they doing things that might be risky? So um, I'll give a specific example of one of the things he might say is he, he might say you see kids climbing things and cl- trying to climb up high. And it's to give them a different perspective of the world. Um, if you think about it, you, yourself as a child, you know, you're always looking up at things. You're looking up at the adults, you're looking up at the, the desks, you're looking up at the like supermarket, wherever you're going. And so to give yourself a different perspective on life um, by climbing, by doing something physical is, is what um, he, I think he would say is the important part of it. So students will put them, or kids, I shouldn't say students, I always think about that as a teacher, but kids will put themselves in circumstances that may be risky. Um, you know, at my school, again, we set some guidelines. One of the, one of the big ones um, that people kind of will... Uh, mention is that there's no technology. And uh, the reason we say that there's no technology is because kids have tons of technology in their life right now. And so we want to see them interacting and connecting with each other rather than with uh, technology. Now, that may be a little bit more difficult uh, this upcoming year, but we still want people to say, hey, how do we reduce the amount of technology? And um, we're not against technology at all. I use this like continuously and um, present on technology and things like that. But I think what we want to say is, hey, let, let the kids get a chance to experience what play is without technology and they'll love it. And um, because most of them have had a lot of their experience of play on technology. And, um, and so that risky play, but going back to risky play, I mean, I, I remember kids uh, this last year piling on um, tables and some people might be having a heart attack right now, especially type A's piling tables. And I was freaking out. Trust me. They're piling tables on top of each other to build a fort, to be able to climb up on top of that fort and have a lookout guy up there. And, and I was just thinking like, oh my goodness, what if they fall? And, um, and I kept an eye on them. I stayed back. I didn't interfere. I didn't come in and rule them. And I heard the conversations they had and they, they talked about keeping each other safe. And I think this, that interconnectedness during playtime is, becomes really important for empathy and for um, caring for one another, which our world can't have more of right now, right? And so I, I think you see these opportunities where kids are putting themselves in a little bit of risk and to see their limits, but also to see like, you know, who's going to step up and help them or how can somebody be a helper in those times of danger and risk? Uh, and there, there's a lot there's a lot to that. I think that's a whole nother podcast as far as like the riskiness of play. 
Yeah. I mean, as, as a child, I remember, um, I guess this might kind of fall in the same category, but I remember me and my brother were playing soccer and, and I made a bet with him that I would eat a tomato, which I hated tomatoes. And I made a bet with him that if I could um, score a goal on him, um, I wouldn't have to eat it. And if I didn't score, I'd have to eat it. Anyhow, so I, I didn't score the goal. Um, and my dad, I remember he, he made me follow through that. That was my lesson. That was, I took a risk with something that I didn't like. And, and it was a, it was a learning opportunity for me. And I guess that's kind of the point to me. Like when, when you're talking about risky plates, it's like, you know, you want to watch the kids, but as an, a parent or a teacher, you don't want to necessarily swoop in and prevent something from happening. That could be a learning opportunity. And, and I thought I just remember Peter Gray talking about that and it, and it really stuck with me. Uh, what say you, Eric? This really is the, the core of what play teaches because <clears throat> play is learning. Um, play is not frivolous. Um, and again, this, this idea that play is separated from serious work and learning is, is a, is where we got off track. Um, and, and unfortunately where we compartmentalized, um, ourselves as people, um, and certainly in education instead of, um, embracing a more holistic, uh, reality. And I think, it feels good to be in education now where I see us kind of winning back um, that more holistic space. First thing is we always talk about we want kids to take risks in their learning and to innovate. But what opportunities are we giving them to do that? Um, you know, in, in like getting to how we evaluate kids, especially in the secondary with uh, points and grades, it's a disincentive to take a risk because kids don't want to lose the points. So there's all types of different structures that we put into place, even though we're saying, take risks, stretch your mind, um, you know, try new things out. Well, play is a methodology for us to do that. It's also a means by which um, we can actually create conflict, right? We're arguing over the rules. We're arguing the ball was in. No, it wasn't. It was out. You're cheating. And also to resolve those conflicts. And hey, I play in some adult basketball leagues in my day. And the same thing is true for us adults too. Last thing on this point, this is a uh, this is a connection back to Dr. Gray. In a recent book, Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff wrote The Coddling of the American Mind. And basically the, the premise of this book, in short, is that uh, the, the state of the American intellect um, really is weak. Um, and, and one of the chapters is on the decline of play. And Dr. Gray's research is the pillar of why we need to reinfuse our society with unstructured play. Um, and so it's, it's I think, a, a really uh, timely read, um, something that doesn't just pertain to education, but I think bigger picture. Uh, last thing is that, you know, the playground is where the neighborhood comes together. Um, and so that's where you're getting um, diverse people um, coming into that common space, um, engaging in whatever game or activity that is. So it's, it's another means by which we're breaking down barriers um, instead of staying safe in our little bubbles. Scott, I saw you had your hand up. Was there something you wanted to add there? Yeah, no, Nick, I think one of the driving forces behind us starting Global School Play Day was we look at a, a, a daily schedule for our kids and they get maybe 20 minutes for a recess, maybe 15. By the time they're eating lunch, done eating lunch, they maybe get another 15 or 20 minutes of play time. We thought that's, that's clearly not enough. And we were seeing so many kids overscheduled after school 
or were unable to go out and play in their communities because of maybe fears or whatever might be happening. And we thought, you know, this is a safe place for kids to get that time to really, really get into play. I mean, when we did this play, when you're talking about your brother, I'm sure it was after school, you weren't loaded down with hours of homework because you had to score well on some test. And you got the opportunity to really process through. And I think you could even make the argument, Nick, that when we've seen the decline of play, we've also seen the decline in the success in the U.S. school system. When they've mm-hmm. when we've ramped up as a, and this is a, you know, an expose of myself is when I was ramping up the homework because I did that. I was also taking away those opportunities for kids to process through what they learned that day and to kind of refresh and and give their minds a chance to set that into a long term process on where they could use it for being creative for being um, problem solvers in the future what's the driving force for you guys here? I mean, you're not getting rich off of this. Um, I mean, you've done it for seven years. You've had good results, but you know, you guys are still pushing, pushing hard to keep this going. What's, what's making you do that? I mean, you know, the first thing is uh, just to get back to that point, global school play day, free of charge, sign up for free. If if there's any <laughs> money anybody wants to spend, they can buy a Global School Playday T-shirt. Look them up on Amazon, um, and uh, and again, those are um, sold essentially at cost, just so that we can uh, get the word out there and make a few more T-shirts. Um, I think for us and, and and Scott definitely jump in. We're both parents um, of school age kids. Um, you know. Uh, I've worked in high school, but um, for the last uh, six to seven years, I've been um, in the middle and elementary years. Scott is an elementary educator. We get to see students, young children at the dawn of their their conscience and, and to watch them uh, grow physically, intellectually, emotionally. And, and so this is extremely personal um, to participate in a system that's either crushing that out of them or backing up a little bit, taking away the rigidity of those different structures and testing and grading and all these other false measures of intelligence um, and and really opening the door for them to get an experience that they may not get out in their community. Because let's remember that not every neighborhood and community is able to provide children with safe spaces in which to play. That's no judgment. It's just a fact. Um, open spaces, um, environments where they can go outside, like Dr. Gray talked about in, in his upbringing, where they just would run around the hills day and night. Um, not every environment is like that in our society, but schools are that safe place. So part of this uh, passion and drive that we have really is to ensure that education is being that platform for equity and social justice, and that opportunity to grow and develop for every child, regardless of where they're from. What do you say to the educator out there that's thinking, are you kidding me? You want me to take a full day that should be for instruction and all the guidelines and the the objectives that we have to reach um, and and dedicate it to just playing? You basically want me to waste a day of instruction? What what would you say to that? Uh, And and believe me, Nick, we've heard that argument before. I would say... Um, yeah, you can stick there, but how are the results going for you? And why not try something? And I think when the, the when the educators who give this a shot and get a chance to observe and see their students, not only does it reinvigorate the student, 
It also reinvigorates those educators to remember their passion for why they're there. They're there to impact, bring joy, have these kids really love being at school. And I think if you ask students, one of the things that keeps them coming to school and research would back this up, they come for their friends. And when we don't provide opportunities for that, then they don't provide an opportunity for us to access their minds to help them to learn. Um, you know, I, I know many educators that questioned this at the beginning. And once they kind of put their toe in the water and tried this out, they're like, oh my gosh, this is like the magic elixir. And I, I would say that I got much more engagement after showing the kids that respect and saying, hey, you know what? I'm going to give you one out of my 180 plus days, one, just one. And the kids were like grateful. They're like, thank you. This is the greatest day ever. Thank you, Mr. Bradley, for giving us this chance to be with our friends and, and get a chance to interact. Like they were like making me cards and notes. It was like better than anything for them, which made it better for anything for me because then I had them buying in also to those times that were focused on education and were focused on the content and were focused on the standards. And I, I created a relationship with them that was mutual respect not just them just demanding respect from them for me because I'm a teacher and I get to say what goes on. It's really showed them that mutual respect that, Hey, I care about you as a person. And here's one thing I'm going to do. That's very small. And also I get a chance to learn from it because I get to see how many times uh, here's another argument, Nick. And I have a ton of these, by the way, here's another argument. I would say to those teachers as I would say, how many times have you had a parent ask you, cause I've had tons of parents ask me, how's my child doing interacting with their peers or with their friends or how they're doing socially in school. And when I only have them in a structured environment, how can I honestly answer that? If I can't say, if I'm not at a recess observing them every day, if I'm not giving up my lunch times, stop giving up your, don't give up your lunch times, give up one day, observe your, observe those kids. And it'll also help you know what motivates them, how they learn. Are they visual? Are they uh, kinesthetic? Like it'll give you so much insight into those kids in just one day that it'll make all your other time far more productive than it was. Well, if there's ever been a school year where people should try something new, this is probably it, 2020, 2021. Um, so I really love what you guys are doing. Uh, I encourage uh, educators around the country and the world to, to hop on board. If somebody wants to sign up, what do they need to do? So first of all, what they can do is go to www.globalschoolplayday.com and sign up. Um, there's a link up on the top of the page and you can even look at past participants and um, check out uh, educators um, from all over the world, um, from single classrooms to uh, schools with many thousands of students um, on six continents. Again, no Antarctica yet, but we'll get there. Two is they can also follow us on Twitter at GS Play Day and also Instagram. Um, and just engage with us and, and look and learn and interact with educators from around the world. Um, and, and also not just us, because there are so many different people and organizations, both inside of education and outside of education, um, that are focused on wellness and they are focused on empowering play as an essential component to not only the development of children, but also to the health and well-being of those local communities and society as a whole. Um, and again, it, it, this year is a, a year unlike any other. 
But uh, as we've talked about in so many different ways, um, from personal experience and also from the research, is this year it's more important than ever to have our children um, get recentered um, on that play space, even if in February 2021 we're in distance virtual learning. We still know that we can have a powerful play day. Um, and so we just really encourage um, our fellow educators and those network of folks that come back year after year to continue to reach out and to um, bring on board um, more of those folks that are still, you know, kind of kind of wondering um, if this belongs in a school setting. And again, we uh, firmly believe that it does. Um, that not only does it belong there, but it'll make what you're doing as an educator and as a school all the better. And Nick, when, when people sign up, all they're doing is saying, hey, we agree with this, and it helps us to use um, their class numbers. We don't use specific names, but just the numbers to say, hey, these people are joining in on this. And so they don't need to be f- like fearful of like a bunch of emails coming their way. And yeah, it's just a more of a petition in a sense to say, hey, there's these many educators that really believe in this movement. Well, Scott Bedley and Eric Sable, um, keep up the amazing work with Global School Play Day. Uh, I just love what you guys have pulled off over the past seven years. And uh, best of luck. Uh, again, Is it? it's going to be February 3rd, 2021. And uh, you can obviously go sign up at Global School Play Day. Thank you guys for coming on the show. Hey, thank you so much, Nick. Really appreciate it. Thank you. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismiss. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed. <laughs>